Welcome to another episode of Cold War Brew Podcast. This is your host, Danny Haifong. Apologies for being a bit late. I was trying to figure out how to publish the links to this episode that I wanted to go over with all of you. You may or may not uh, be able to access these. I've never actually accessed links that were... um, that were uh, that were published on an episode before, so this is new. So I hope you all can see them. So, of course, as always, please feel free to call in, get in the queue, have a conversation uh, with whatever may be on your mind. And uh, sorry also for the delay in episodes. I have been in, moving... I have been in quite a lot of transition personally while trying to maintain this media work, but uh, now I think it will be uh, easier to maintain the weekly commitment. But um, with that said, though, of course, as you all come in, please feel free to get in the queue. We can have a conversation, whatever is on your mind. Of course, I do have uh, topics lined up for this evening that I wanted to comment on. Also, a few announcements, of course. Uh, Last night, I had Scott Ritter on the Left Lens and on my Rockfin channel, so you can go check those out on the Left Lens at YouTube and on Rockfin. You can also um, be aware of a future programming. going to have uh, Dr. Mohammed Mirandi, this coming Sunday to talk about Iran and the Iran protests. I've also commented on this on the left lens after the Scott Ritter interview yesterday. So uh, there's a lot coming up and there's a lot that I've been uh, trying to manage as I uh, get readjusted and recentered in this move. So welcome everyone to Cold War Brew Podcast. We can get started, of course, uh, continue to share this around and boost it as you see fit, uh, so that we can get more callers in here and uh, do not hesitate to get in the queue. So uh, with all that said, though, let's get to the pieces. One, I wanted to bring up something that happened uh, yesterday. Okay, so a lot of things have been changing. and, And although I focus mainly on China, it is hard not to focus on the situation with regard to Ukraine, with regard to Russia, the special military operation that Russia is waging, the proxy war that NATO is waging uh, against Russia. It's hard not to focus on it because it does have so many connections to everything that I already speak about. So uh, with that said, there is just uh, just such a flurry of developments that I covered very briefly in my last episode on Putin's speech. But those developments have really changed the landscape from the referendums, right? The referendums that saw four regions of eastern Ukraine in the Donbass, as well as um, other parts of Ukraine, of East Ukraine, join the Russian Federation. And uh, this also includes the Nord Stream pipeline terrorist attack which now has essentially cut off Germany and uh, Europe's ability 
to transport gas to to receive gas from Russia, and so uh, a lot has changed in a very short period of time. What hasn't changed though is uh, the mainstream media, uh, the U.S. media's uh, uh, just absolute love affair with. Ukraine's Nazi problem. So Ukraine does have a neo-Nazi problem. I've talked about it on Twitter. I've talked about it on my programs. Uh, despite the fact that a lot of censorship, I don't really, I try not to talk about this too much because um, I kid you not, I was reported 10 times on Twitter uh, yesterday. I received an email uh, saying that German law, this happens all the time. I don't know what it is about Germany. I don't know if there's some sort of CIA base station there. I'm sure that there is. Uh, but uh, according to German law, right, they have to tell me when I am reported on Twitter. Twitter has to tell me this. And it was 10 tweets, some of them having to do with Ukraine, some of them having to do with other things like Venezuela. But nonetheless, when you say Ukraine and you say Nazis, you usually get a huge backlash from the Western corporate media, usually the liberal media, but generally the entire establishment and censorship is definitely something that comes along with it. So uh, nonetheless, it doesn't change the fact that the mainstream Western corporate media has a love affair with Ukraine's Nazi problem. It's neo-Nazi problem. And so yesterday they published a report talking about how commanders of Ukraine's celebrated, celebrated Azov Battalion. So mind you, the Azov Battalion is largely a defeated neo-Nazi force in Ukraine. Uh, it has roots in the Banderist organization, uh, uh, OAN, the uh, uh, OUN, I mean, the Organization of Ukrainian Nationalists. It has roots in this history of fascism in Ukraine, and it was uh, integrated into Ukraine's National Guard after the 2014 coup that the United States backed. So they've been an instrumental force in this proxy war. They've been uh, largely defeated, though in places like Mariupol, and uh, a lot of them had to flee. And so the New York Times talks about the emotional reunion that they were having, these commanders with their families in Turkey, Ukrainian officials said, honoring the fighters released from Russian confinement last month. So this, of course, sparked a flurry of replies. The tweet immediately got ratioed. Uh, one of the best ones is Ben Norton, a friend of the show, who posted all of the feel-good Nazi propaganda in the U.S. newspaper of record. He, he said that while he posted uh, direct sources from the mainstream Western corporate media, The Hill back in 2018, saying Congress bans arms to Ukraine militia linked to neo-Nazis. Reuters in 2018 also saying Ukraine's neo-Nazi problem. The Atlantic Council, NATO's think tank, saying Ukraine's got a real problem with far-right violence. And no, RT didn't write this headline. And then the Atlantic Council again in 2020, the Azov Regiment has not depoliticized. So that just demonstrates how indeed, by, with the New York Times doing this, they are showing that they have a deep affinity 
to Ukraine's neo-Nazi problems and these particular forces, the Azov Battalion, which is now or was called the Azov Regiment, but has been essentially obliterated. Uh, There are forces, of course, still operating, but uh, they are much weaker. And uh, that is the reason why Russia has been able to move forward with these referendums. And no matter how many Ukrainian so-called counter-offensives that um, uh, seem to be successful in certain places like Lehman and Kharkov, it doesn't matter. What matters is the fact that uh, Russia is in this for the long game and has an obvious long-term strategic vision for how this proxy war is going to go, how this NATO-led proxy war is going to go, and it includes... Uh, what has been happening, which is the obliteration of forces like the Azov Battalion. So uh, here we see the lines drawn pretty firmly. And it just shows, again, that this media, this media landscape that we're living in, this Western corporate media, this U.S.-led Western corporate media, has, from the beginning, chosen sides. It hasn't reported on this with any sort of neutrality, with any sort of journalistic ethos, with any sort of investigatory responsibility. What it's done is it has latched on to the war machine, as it usually does, the military-industrial complex, Wall Street, and uh, promoted what is really the whitewashing of Nazism, of neo-Nazism. And uh, I wanted to bring this up because, for me, it just once again demonstrates the absurdity of this new Cold War. How many times have we heard Russia is so authoritarian, so far right, so conservative, so um, so stifling, so anti-democratic? And now you literally have the New York Times, the New York Times global section, uh, giving complete and utter tongue baths to Nazis, to neo-Nazis. And, re- and, and we don't get to say this on YouTube without being demonetized. We don't get to say this on the platforms that we have uh, to, you know, that, that, we're la- that we use, social media, et cetera, without being mass reported. And, and, and on Twitter, I mean, luckily, uh, I was not this time uh, punished because I was told that none of my tweets uh, fit the criteria for punishing me on uh, social media on Twitter, but I am on strike two. I am on strike two on Twitter. Um, I have been once warned. I forget what that was about. That was a while ago. Oh, I know what that was about. What am I saying? Keith Olbermann. So the first time on Twitter, I received my first strike because uh, Keith Olbermann went after Wyatt Reed, and I replied to him saying that he is a whore for the capitalist class when he was calling Wyatt Reed a whore for authoritarian dictators like in Nicaragua. Then I made a thread about the Tiananmen Square incident, talking about the real history, talking about the U.S. support for color revolution forces that were trying to sow instability in China at that time in 1989. And I was reported and they said that I was conducting harassment and I was locked out for 12 hours. And in that message that I received, I was told that the next time I get reported and successful, I could be um, I could be removed permanently. And so I took that as, oh, okay. 
So I am going to essentially be gone the next time that my uh, Twitter posts are reported and the Twitter, whatever, whoever it is on Twitter uh, that is uh, that is deciding these things uh, says that, yeah, I'm I need to be. Uh, censored that I need to be taken off the platform. That's what I how I took it as. So uh, that's why I'm saying this stuff here. I don't generally talk like this on my YouTube streams because you know the consequences are pretty clear. I could be removed at any moment. So that's why it's great that we have platforms where we can talk exactly how we would like to talk. That doesn't mean I change my politics on any one of my other platforms. Just means that I am just careful how I frame things. Nonetheless, though, I did put my Telegram because I had a user, uh, I think it was Cunt the Pentagon, who said, follow my Telegram. And so now you can find that in the chat because I am saying anywhere, everywhere that I, where I do media, I am telling people that uh, they should follow me on Telegram in case, you know, in case I am disappeared on social media. So nonetheless, there you go. The New York Times disappeared. I mean, the New York Times, what am I saying? The New York Times gave a tongue bath to Ukrainian Nazis. And once again, it shows the hypocrisy. This new Cold War is really, I mean, it is a lot about hypocrisy. It's about the uh, overall aims of this empire. It's about meeting those aims. It's about taking out any country that resists U.S. domination and uh, hypocrisy, lies, straight up lies, are a big part of that. And one of the ways that this empire lies to us is by whitewashing the very crimes of their uh, vassals and their puppets. And that is Ukraine in a nutshell. Ukraine is viewed as this amazing and incredible, benevolent, heroic, completely lily-white a democracy, but nothing could be further from the truth. It's one of the most unstable, one of the most far right, one of the most undemocratic places in the world right now. And it's only gotten worse during the Russia special military operation where we've seen Ukraine basically roll back all rights, right? Including collective bargaining rights, the right to strike, as well as the right to, you know, just the right to. Um, you know, join the Communist Party. There's been political parties completely wiped off the map, opposition parties. So, you know, Ukraine is portrayed as this lily white democracy that everyone should look up to because it's being, uh, t- you know, attacked by a so called aggressor without any attention to the reality, which is that Ukraine is nothing but a pawn in this new Cold War on Russia and on China because if Ukraine can be made to be not neutral if it is no longer a neutral country, if it is in NATO, if it is a complete and utter vassal of the United States, then not only will Russia suffer because of the ongoing NATO encirclement and all the consequences of that, including being drawn in further into a military campaign, but China will also lose because Ukraine's neutrality up until this point meant not only that during Viktor Yanukovych's rule that maybe there would be more thawing with Russia 
and less reliance on the EU and NATO, but it also meant that China would be would be able to continue to develop relations an economic relationship with Ukraine that may be in jeopardy should Ukraine continue to go down this path because wherever there is an assault on Russia in this new cold war you better believe that China is also part of the uh, equation that's why you constantly hear the ruling class in the US and Europe try to berate China why don't you do more against Russia meanwhile China has been neutral from the beginning right uh, trying to be a peacemaker uh, cooperating with both countries and really just upholding the UN charter while at the same time refusing to cave to imperialist diktats which tell China that they should punish Russia as if this conflict isn't incredibly complex and is not something that began on February 24, 2022. But nonetheless, I'm going to move on from this topic and I want to talk about something else now. Please do uh, continue to boost this however you can, but also get in the queue, okay? Uh, let's have a conversation, whatever may be on your mind about these topics, about anything else. Uh, I will uh, take your call. So the next topic uh, is something that wasn't covered at all because, you know, Ukraine gets a lot of attention. This celebration of Nazism in Ukraine gets a lot of attention. The uh, Now, mind you, of course, the way that the Western corporate media pays attention to the Ukraine crisis is absolutely uh, uh, – completely peppered with bias and it's all about forwarding a cold war agenda but also people on the left and just general anti-establishment forces have been focusing a lot on the ukraine crisis because it's very important it has monumental uh, consequences for humanity but one story and i see you bert and i'm going to get to you in just a couple minutes i just want to review this story quickly so definitely hold um uh, uh you know your thought your question but one but a story you know china tends to get less attention when it does get attention it's generally not on stories that will make waves because it's just part of this ongoing campaign to demonize china but you know, I, I link to a source from Al Mayadeen, which is Lebanese. They do really good work, actually, on foreign policy in particular. Talking about, you know, last month there was uh, a report from the NSA that said there were tens of thousands of malicious attacks against China recently. And in one place where this occurred was in Northwestern Polytechnical University in Shanxi, China. And it was announced that foreign trackers were caught sending phishing emails with Trojan horse programs, malware, malware that misleads users to teachers and students at the university in an attempt to steal their data and personal information. And so a police statement released by uh, Bailin Public Security Bureau in Xi'an, which I've been to, it's very beautiful, stated that the attack's intent was to lure teachers and students into clicking links of phishing emails, tricking them with themes involving scientific evaluation, thesis defense, and information on foreign travel in order to obtain their email login credentials. And so China's National Computer Virus Emergency Response Center and Internet Security Company, Chihu 360, formed a joint technical team to conduct a comprehensive technical analysis of the case and investigate the attack. 
So after collecting the Trojan horse samples from internet terminals from Northwestern Polytechnical University, and with the support of European and South Asian partners, the team diagnosed the cyber attack was conducted by the Tailored Access Operations Code S32 under Data Reconnaissance Bureau of the Information Department of the U.S. National Security Agency. And so just a little bit about TAO, T-A-O. Founded in 1998, and it's the largest and most significant part of the intelligence division of the NSA, and its main responsibility is to secretly access the insider information of its competitors through the internet, invade target countries' classified information infrastructure to steal account codes, break computer security systems, monitor network traffic, invade privacy, and steal sensitive data such as access to phone calls, emails, network communications, and messages. So, there you go. Okay, and this is all about, this is an ongoing campaign, right? You hear all the time that China is stealing patents, China is stealing all kinds of information. And let me just tell you that not only is there never any evidence presented, but never is this part of the equation talked about. How the U.S. has such a hard time penetrating China with manpower, it can't get its intelligence agents in the country. So what it tries to do is use the cyber realm. It tries to use the digital realm to undermine China's sovereignty and to undermine and to steal information in order to, quote unquote, compete with China. Really do what China is always accused of, steal information, steal economic, sensitive economic, technological, scientific data in order to try to undermine China's progress and rise. So I wanted to bring this up, and I'm going to get to you, Bert, now, but I wanted to bring this up because I found it to be, and I think I've mentioned it on this podcast before, just such a stark example of how this new Cold War also projects onto the adversaries of the United States those very qualities that the United States possesses and employs all around the world, but also on its own population, because we know that this kind of thing is happening to us all the time and that we have no recourse with it, right? Whether it's a censorship on social media or whether it's just the downright collecting of our data and the way that that data is then used in order to make super profits or in order to keep tabs on us so if and when it is necessary to punish the populate to punish us individually or collectively, then that can happen. And we've seen since the war on terror, of course, how that has played out. But nonetheless, I'm going to get to Bert. So um, I see you in the queue. I'm going to let you in. So you can now uh, ask your question or uh, comment, Bert. And then uh, please, uh, everyone, uh, please do join in the conversation. hear you. Now. Hello. Hello? Uh, yes, I can hear you. There was some... Oh, so for some oh, reason, my I phone was you. kind of freezing. Uh, oh, oh, you can't hear me? Oh, no. Um, <laughs> question I, have I understand completely. Uh, is regarding the material resources that are at play in the Ukraine... Russia, U.S., Western conflict. Um, I don't know if you covered that before regarding, because um, you know, I kind of jumped in late. I was just kind of sitting around seeing what's going on on call-in and um, came across your, your show. 
And I was just kind of wondering what you saw as that going on, what we're looking for as far as like the Western nations in terms of the material resources at play, whether they be energy or agricultural or other. That's a good question, Bert. Can you hear me now? Bert? Oh, okay. Uh, you can put in the chat if you can hear me. And if anyone is having trouble hearing me, please do let me know. Um, because that was a good question. And, I, and I, <laughs> it would be a shame if I answered it and Bert could not hear it. Of course, you can catch it on the playback as well. But um, good question. I mean, the material resources involved. I mean, this, this is a big question uh, because I think what at least how I interpret this question is that there are certain aims, right, uh, that both sides have. Both both Russia and NATO have material interests. I mean, that's obvious. Now, I do think, right, and this is an unpopular take in the West, I do think that Russia's material interests are, by and large, defensive in character. And what I mean by that is that uh, Russia didn't enter the special military operation unprovoked, as what is often talked about. It entered it because it was already under siege by NATO, and the red line was being crossed, right? Uh, and that's been the case since 2014, but it was escalating. And of course, while we can't verify the possible reports that Russia understood that there was going to be kind of a final solution, uh, waged by NATO supporting Ukraine if Russia didn't mobilize support for uh, for the Donbass, for Lugansk, Donetsk, etc. at the time that it did, that uh, we might be in a completely different ball game, and we might have seen a, a, a really just disastrous massacre of the people of that region, as had been occurring already since 2014 with the ongoing and completely unprovoked, actually unprovoked shelling of the Donbass republics as part of the U.S.'s, uh, you know, balkanization of Ukraine. And so the resources involved are quite clear, and we see it in how the United States and NATO have tried to strangle Russia's economy. And so Russia, right, has deep interests with Europe and with Ukraine uh, in in all areas, energy, food, uh, you mentioned agriculture, military, I mean, not so much with Ukraine, uh, uh, but uh, but Russia is a huge also uh, military industrial power. And uh, Russia's whole uh, objective for many years since Putin has been president, since the United Russia Party has been uh, in power in, in the Duma has been to integrate Russia with Europe. And what has happened is that NATO has decided that uh, uh, there is a bigger strategy at play, which is economics is secondary to a military campaign. And the military campaign is to draw Russia in to a proxy war, which hopefully will lead to Russia's dismemberment, its overthrow. Now, 
of course, there are other economic interests here when we talk about resources. A big one is whenever we're talking about NATO, whenever we're talking about proxy wars, we have to talk about the military-industrial complex. The military-industrial complex has a huge amount of investment in this war being permanent. The military-industrial complex does not want to see this stop. Despite the fact that actually the military-industrial complex is going to be outstretched because even the military-industrial complex has limits. These HIMARS systems, all of these weapon systems that are being promised to Ukraine are years down the road. So even just these initial agreements, these tens of billions of dollars that are being agreed upon in new weaponry cannot even be built and much of which won't even go to Ukraine until 2024. I think that's part of the reason why United, the United States, when Ukraine tried to fast track itself into NATO after the referendums in East Ukraine, Jake Sullivan and even much of the EU said, oh, maybe later. And I think that's because, yes, there is going to be a later. This is going to continue. That's what they hope. And it's a lot of a lot of it is because the military industrial complex wants to continue to pile on right onto Ukraine more and more debt by way of military uh, contracting and uh, uh, basically dumping its productive, um, you know, its military production onto Ukraine in order to make massive profits from not Ukraine, but government contracts, U.S. government contracts, federal contracts. So there's that. But um, in, in terms of Russia, though, right, Russia, Russia doesn't need Ukraine. Russia doesn't need Ukraine. But Russia certainly wants, right, it's within its interests, uh, it, the Ukraine is the was called the breadbasket of the world uh, during the Soviet era, and, and that's because it is extremely resource rich. And uh, it, while while Russia certainly leads the world in things like grain production, uh, Ukraine could have that potential if it had any kind of stability and wasn't an IMF client state, an IMF NATO client state. So. Certainly, you already see with the Donbass referendums and the East Ukraine referendums, you see that there already is, Russia already is beginning to nationalize certain economic industries. I know there was a nuclear plant in Zaporozhye that was recently nationalized. You're going to see more of that because, yes, Russia will, it. Russia has to protect itself. Russia, I mean, look at what happened to the Nord Stream pipeline. Russia indeed has to continue. It's going to have negative growth over the next year. Because of that terrorist attack, which was probably committed by the United States. We don't have direct evidence, but we have a lot of circumstantial evidence that would hold up in any court of law anywhere in the world. So, with that said, uh, uh, yes, there's a lot of, I mean, just like anything with the new Cold War, any element of the new Cold War, there's an economic component at the root of it. And that is to strangle Russia's economy. That is to keep, uh, rather than uh, uh, Ukraine being the breadbasket of the world, it is the basket case of the world. And, and that's what the United States and NATO want, because they had this idea that by doing both of these things, sanctioning Russia and keeping Ukraine within its orbit, that that somehow would lead to Russia's uh, fall, Russia's downfall. 
the exact opposite has been true. We see Europe approaching winter time. I have I have friends in the UK. I have friends in France, and they are not doing well right now. The energy crisis is incredibly uh, damaging to their economies. It's going to. It already has, in my opinion, but officially, it will eventually. Uh, facilitate a recession and one you know one of the things about this too is that the u.s sees all of this as an opportunity for itself look at what's happened with the u.s dollar it has become overinflated. it has been artificially inflated by europe's ruin the united states has destroyed the euro has has gone to parity, if not surpassing the euro in value, the dollar, the U.S. dollar, and uh, this is a way to temporarily uh, boost the United States's economy. Even though, of course, uh, the vast majority of people are suffering from the high inflation that has come as a result of these policies, and the great opportunity, as Anthony Blinken brought up when talking about the Nord Stream pipeline terrorist attacks was that is that now U.S. LNG fracked gas corporate uh, parasites, right? These LNG corporations, these monopolies, uh, they are going to look to profit mightily from Europe's disaster and ruin. But as any smart economist, any smart and astute analyst would uh, note is that there's no rush to this, right? If there's one thing you can count on when it comes to U.S. investment is that it won't be rapid and it will not have the kind of benefit you would expect. It won't be a direct replacement. U.S. LNG is not cheap and it is not easy to get to Europe. There's a whole lot of infrastructure that needs to be developed in order for Europe to import this gas and energy. So, Europe is going to suffer in the short term. The United States is hoping to benefit in the short and medium term. Meanwhile, the long-term synopsis, the long-term landscape is economic crisis and potential collapse in Europe, as well as the ongoing threat of escalating militarism, possibly leading to nuclear exchange because as we... Uh, as it was reported today in Russian media and U.S. media, Western media, every, all the media, Poland is now in negotiations with the United States to enter NATO's nuclear sharing program. So this is only getting worse. These escalations are only getting worse. Ukraine is not stopping. They're continuing their what I think are just absolutely wasteful counteroffensives and offensives in, in the Donbass. And now they're going to be doing it when it's considered Russian territory, eventually this partial mobilization will come into gear and Ukraine will face the brunt of Russia's military capacity, which Russia has been holding back up until this point. Russia has not been sending out all of its troops. It's now mobilizing 300,000. And when those 300,000 are ready to go, Ukraine is in big trouble. The special military operation, or I mean this proxy war is in big trouble. And uh, we will have to wait and see, and I think we can expect, 
how the United States and NATO are going to react, but we're also going to probably have to be ready to respond, educate, agitate, and organize um, in a real way to to demand uh, actual peace, which is what Russia wants, and it's what most of the world wants. It's not what the U.S. It's not what NATO wants, and and that's because as as Bert asked, it's it's because of uh, the economic roots of this and how there are there is a materialist basis for this it isn't just two sides that don't like each other right there are real interests that the u.s and nato are trying to facilitate here and none of them are beneficial to us so i don't see anyone else in the queue but uh oh i see fahim fahim i am making you the next caller. You can speak now. Hey, uh, Denny, how are you? I'm doing all right. I'm doing all right. How are you? Good, good. Uh, so a, a quick uh, question. You mentioned about Russia's economic interests. What interests does Russia have economically? Uh, if you could uh, be specific. The reason why I asked uh, the question is uh, that Russia, when it comes to natural resources, it's pretty damn rich when it comes to uh, like food uh, uh, stuff like wheat and all. It's very rich. Industrially, it's quite uh, uh, rich. It's not like a service, a totally service type economy like the U.S. So wh- what is their, uh, what could be their economic uh, interest? Uh, um, to me, I'm like when I see the sanctions and all part of me is uh, that, okay, but yeah, you they may not be able to get their uh, uh, French croissants or the Pinot Grigios uh, from France or Italy. But uh, does that really hurt them or uh, not in like real terms for like real people living uh, day to day? So I'd mm-hmm. like to get, get some uh, specific uh, on like when you talk about it, uh, economic uh, uh, interests on like, okay, what economic interest uh, is it? So, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, well. I think you make really good points about uh, the resilience of Russia's economy. It is very true that these sanctions have backfired and that it's mainly affecting what were already fragile capitalist economies, imperialist economies in the United States and the West. That is undeniable. One thing, though, that has to be mentioned, I think, it just a, just a sober analysis of Russia's economy, is that yes, it is it, Russia has, and this wouldn't be the case if it weren't for the Soviet Union. So, for all of those who are like Russia's amazing, Russia's amazing. Well, a lot of the reasons why Russia is able to do what it's doing now is because, despite shock therapy, um, a lot of Russia, especially Russia's major energy producing companies, uh, they weren't able to be fully privatized because, well, a lot was privatized and a lot was destroyed during the shock therapy era under Boris Yeltsin, uh, the Clinton-backed Yeltsin era. If energy and other sectors of the economy were privatized, you would have seen uh, not just the massive suffering, but but really uh, Russia, I mean, there's just no way it would be able to exist as it is. It would be 
it would have been completely and utterly balkanized even within the the Russian Federation, not just the Soviet Union being balkanized. So uh, it, it would have been a, a, a disaster and nobody, not even the capitalists would have been, would have benefited from that kind of nightmare. So uh, Russia is able to do things and when its leadership changed uh, to Vladimir Putin and others in his camp, it became more of an open society, uh, <laughs> which is uh, may surprise many. It became, you know, more friendly to a multi-party system, despite the fact that it has a pretty centralized political system, and that has allowed it to do things like maneuver around the U.S. and Europe's attempt to destroy Russia's economy. But I do want to say that Russia's economy is still quite small. And despite Russia's industriousness and industrial capacity and um, and its dominance in energy and other natural resources and in agriculture, uh, despite this, it is still because of the uh, backwardness and poverty from the fall of the Soviet Union that was sown into society, Russia still has a long ways to go to get itself out of what could be considered a, a neo-colonial economic situation, meaning that while it certainly in political leadership terms is not a neo-colony, uh, you had Vladimir Putin calling that out in his speech after the Donbass referendums. Uh, Russia is a sovereign country for sure. But economically, it still is mainly a, an export of raw materials and not so much of capital. So what Russia needs to import is capital, generally. So we're talking about things like machinery, the things that make factories go, the thing that makes production go. And it has to import those things, high technology, things like that. And that is where Russia's interests lie. So if Russia is um, – if they attempt to isolate Russia, which hasn't really worked, uh, then we will see – you know. Russia look toward, as it has been doing for many years now, the East look toward its sister countries in, in the African continent and Latin America to continue to strengthen its alliance with China, which of course is a leader in things like high tech, and continue on the path of becoming a more modern and developed economic uh, a system. Uh, you know, a system that really is a mixed economy with a, a sort of a, a capitalist command structure, but also has centralized elements which allow it, right? Sort of this economic nationalism, which allows it to uh, skirt and to avoid some of the catastrophes that come with, um, right, with this Western-dominated world capitalist system. So, so I'm going to get to Iggy in a second, um, but Fahim, that was a really good question, and and I do think uh, that it's something we're going to need to watch out for because you know Russia Russia doesn't want to stay where it's at. Just like China, right, is uh, become has become a moderately prosperous socialist country, it wants to become a modern socialist country by 2050. So no one wants to stay where they're at because you know there's still real issues to resolve real uneven development, and Russia has a lot of that as well. So, um, Iggy, you are now in the queue. You can ask your question. 
Hey, Danny. Uh, Hi. Yeah, I think, um, you know, you're making these points about the swing, Russia's swing east to basically look at its export, energy exports. It's 50% west, 50% east. Well, let's face it, everyone wants to buy what Russia produces. It doesn't matter what you do with sanctions. It's going to sell its stuff wherever it wants, right? Mm -hmm. And I posted a link into a, an article which was looking at um, the effect of sanctions that goes back to other countries. Sanctions basically don't work on countries because they can always be bypassed because there are always ways of working around them. And, um, you know, Russia's position now occupying what it occupies in, in Ukraine, it controls 95% of, of Ukraine's GDP. It's taken control of about 1.7 trillion cubic metres of frackable gas under the DPR, which if the Ukrainian government had um, not essentially tried to wreck uh, the DPR LPR and trigger essentially the situation as it is today, which was predictable over 10 years ago by Mearsheimer and Cohen, as I've said many times on other people's channels, um, it would be controlling that frackable gas, right? Well, now, now it's pushed that into the hands of Russia, uh, who knows how to manage energy and will reconstruct the DPR, LPR and the east of former Ukraine using that money. So essentially, none of the Western strategy, um, none of the overt Western strategy is working. And no matter what people say about the current war front, um, you know, and the, suppo the supposed heroic gains of Ukraine is going to stand the test of time come the winter or the or even the spring or the spring those battlefronts will have completely changed because something that people don't bother to ask or no one in the western media says this no one on here who defends the pro-ukrainian pro-western narrative says this how many men are left to operate weapon systems that the us or the west wants to import basically if you do the if you do a bit of digging about 169,000 men were listed in Ukraine's armed ground forces, right? So that's obviously frontline troops plus support and logistics. And according to the according to the MOD of Russia, which obviously is going to be partisan, they count 61,000 dead, 49,000 injured. Ukraine's estimates are way lower, obviously, but even half the number that, that comes from Russia and you've still got a massive manpower problem, right? We're not actually providing men to Ukraine. And NATO, I mean, Britain has literally admitted that the amount of men it could deploy in any war zone is less than 5,000, right? That's nothing. And we're, a G we're what, the G8 nation, okay? Germany can't deploy men. The West has literally depleted its, its war um, weapons just pump them in and it now has to build those back up okay for their own arsenals and that's it and and uh, so you know the, the 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 incomplete picture of ukraine is what you get if you read cnn and the bbc you have to work hard to look at a lot of the sources to get sort of a bit more complete complete view but economically um Although you you know you acknowledge that you know Russia's Russia is a well, a smaller economy, you know it's the way you do business, isn't it? It's, it's the way that and with whom you do business to build an alliance, and and that and that is the whole game of Russia and China is to is to build strategic alliances based on some kind of terms that people don't feel 
well, people feel is a better competitive alternative to the World Bank, the IMF and the Western model. And if they pull that off, then they will grow in power over the next 10 years, without doubt, because they have been doing already. Cheers. Sorry about that, guys. I saw someone else in the queue. Um, so you can come back in the queue. I'm going to continue here. But um, what I was saying was these were all very insightful comments. Uh, Iggy's, uh, your comment was, you know, uh, very insightful. Uh, all these questions have been very insightful. And, uh, you know, a few points that were raised that I find just so true. One, the... Um, the, the, the notion of how you do business is being very important. You know, I was saying that it's not just that Russia produces cheap energy to the, for the world. It's not just that China produces cheap now technology, like high value added goods for the world. Uh, it's not just that. It's also that these countries can be relied upon. They are reliable partners. And uh, because of that, uh, you will see, and we've seen over and over again, no matter how much the U.S. and NATO try to escalate with Russia and China, they continue to be able to make progress on their economic and uh, ultimately, you know, their overall visions for what, how the world should cooperate, uh, especially around development, and that's going to continue. And I was saying that hell, it it would continue with the with Europe and the U.S. with, with regard to Russia too, if it weren't for these massive escalations. Uh, just yesterday, the price cap was passed by the European Union on Russian energy and Russian oil. You know, so it just goes on and on and on. This kind of shooting themselves in the foot, but nonetheless, uh, Russia. Want, says over and over again. Putin says over and over again. We will fulfill our contractual obligations. But when there is a direct assault on Russia, then, of course, there's going to be a massive reduction in that production to Europe. And now with the Nord Stream pipeline terrorist attack, well, uh, that just complicates matters even further. But Russia will have willing partners all over the world from Iran to China. Most of you know, much of the African continent has become much closer with Russia, Latin America, uh, and the same goes for China, to We could even argue a deeper degree because of China's uh, overall economic development being, um, you know, just absolutely uh, impressive. So with that said, you know, also the sanctions not working was a great point. I'll just close on this before I get to you, Fentomas. Uh, I will get to you in a second. But the sanctions not working is a very good point. The sanctions have had, a conse- have had consequences, of course. I mean, even on Russia, right, it has forced Russia to do things differently. And Russia has found a way to even benefit from this situation. But, you know, a lot of countries, smaller countries, countries that don't have these uh, technical uh, productive monopolies over certain resources, like Venezuela, for example, they've suffered mightily from sanctions. But even Venezuela over the last year has, uh, since the pandemic even, has been able to come out of uh, an economic crisis caused by U.S. sanctions and actually grow economically and fortify and strengthen the Bolivarian uh, socialist project there. So um, 
sanctions really have not worked in terms of their ultimate aim. Sure, there's been suffering. Sure, there's been dep- deprivation. And that can't be minimized. But the ultimate goal is not deprivation and suffering. It's for that to lead to regime change. And if we look around the world, even in countries where sanctions are really severe, Syria, for example, the Caesar sanctions, I mean, Syria's government is not going anywhere. <laughs> Syria's government is quite strong. What sanctions have actually helped produce, have actually helped facilitate, and I would say really, actually, let me change that word from facilitate to reinforce, is what was already a pattern around the world among global South countries, oppressed nations, um, nations with histories of colonial and neo-colonial subjugation. Uh, these countries in the Middle East, Africa, Central Asia, um, Southeast Asia, you know, all, Af- all across the world, Latin America, the Caribbean, they've become closer and closer. And actually now they've accelerated the, the multipolar project, the multipolar world order, this vision has actually accelerated the idea that it is okay to have different economic systems and to acknowledge different economic systems and still work together. And that is driving the United States just and, and Europe uh, through the roof because, I mean, this show is about Cold Wars. This show is about the new Cold War. And any kind of Cold War, really any kind of war that the United States wages or, or supports is all about reinforcing one kind of economic model. So if there's a vision in the world that says, no, actually, multiple can exist and they can coexist and uh, 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 we can benefit from all, then countries like China, Cuba, Nicaragua, Venezuela, these countries can not only exist, but they can thrive and they can work together with countries like Russia, uh, countries on the African continent, uh, countries like Iran, and uh, do quite a lot of amazing things. And so I'm going to close it there so I can get to Fantomas. Uh, you will be the last caller, I believe, unless, you know, there's some folks out there who really have something that they want to say or ask. Um, so I'll keep the queue open. Uh, but this will be the last caller if no one should uh, come behind you. So you should be able to speak now. Yeah, I just wanted to mention you and give you a heads up that the U.S. Department of uh, Health and Human Services has uh, they just put on the press release that they just purchased two hundred ninety million dollars in nuclear and radiolo- radiological emergency drug called Enplate. What, what's your comment on that? <laughs> well, that's uh, that's actually something I I peeped on Twitter before I. Um, came on here and I haven't been able to look into any further but I'm sure as as you just as you read I'm sure there might not be a lot of commentary or a lot of uh, uh, details on it but it's hard to say you know I don't have a, a huge historical grasp on uh, what that would mean but I do think it's not a good sign uh, you know I think given that Today also marks Poland's entrance into negotiations around nuclear sharing. I've been saying this for a while when it comes to the Russia situation and as well as China, right around the Taiwan 
uh, uh, situation, as well as just this whole new Cold War on China. You know, I've been saying for a while that there is obviously, if it isn't a unified poll within the U.S., uh, NATO, Europe establishment, if it isn't a unified poll, what it is, is it's definitely a particular faction with influence in the military industrial complex, as well as all sectors uh, that want to experiment with this kind of nuclear conflict. What I mean by that is that nuclear weapons, you don't spend trillions of dollars. Uh, uh, Remember Obama, he invested trillions in uh, repairing and fixing and um, kind of uh, updating the U.S.'s nuclear arsenal. You don't do that if you don't plan for them to have some kind of role, right? And I don't think it's just a deterrent role. You don't plan for to use them. I mean, the United States is the only country to ever use nuclear weapons. So I don't think it's, it's something beyond the pale to think that the United States may use them. Now, I've had callers on here say, well, the United States NATO would never go for that because it would destroy them. You know, the whole the mutually assured destruction argument. And I think that is still a powerful deterrent for actually using nuclear weapons. Yes. However, to say that that uh, uh, is definitive, that that means that they will never be used, that can possibly be used, even in the near future, I think is naive. I I think uh, really underestimates not just the erratic character of this imperialist system, but also it underestimates how far um, how far these elites will go to preserve their hegemony, to preserve the dominance required. You know, I've been saying for a while, and this Russia situation changed the landscape, accelerated things quite rapidly. But I've been saying for a while that, you know, 2025, 2027, whenever the United States uh, becomes a smaller economy to China, that we will see what has already been escalating dramatically with China potentially enter into a a possible nuclear situation because the United States really has nothing. The United States can't compete with China. It can't do anything to China militarily. It certainly can't compete with China economically. It certainly doesn't have any of the the socialist uh, characteristics. It doesn't have any of the advantages. It doesn't have, as Iggy was talking about, it doesn't have that, that vision and that strategy that it's employing to make friends. It doesn't have any of that. So what it has is a military arsenal largely that can't do anything to China. We're seeing that play out even with Russia. The United States can't defeat Russia militarily. It would be an absolute disaster. It would be, you know, it would be akin to a Vietnam with even quicker, with even quicker defeat because of the nuclear option. And so with that said, I think that that reality is, is acknowledged. I think it's something that a lot of the most hawkish elements in the U.S. and in, in European establishment understand, 
is that nuclear war is on the table. Is it in front? Is it the first option? No, but it's on the table. And so these kind of moves uh, surely will frighten just the headline is frightening. But I think it's on the table. And if it's on the table and there's, you know, economic and political interests, if there's exploitation, if there's profits to be made, then we can't rule out that it will happen, you know, that it can happen, that it certainly is a possibility. And that, you know, things like this, I don't know if you all remember, um, uh, I believe it was, what was it, earlier this summer when here, uh, when in New York City, uh, Eric Adams, you know, the mayor, he had the New York City, um, uh, I don't, I don't, I forget if it was the health department. I don't know what department was overseeing it, but they released a video. New York City, this uh, government released a video about what to do when there's a nuclear incident, mainly if there was to be a nuclear attack. And it was very dystopian. It was very strange. I mean, I, I encourage you to just look up NYC nuclear uh, war video, nuclear attack video. Um, and it's just this, it's about what, two or three minutes long. And basically what it outlines is what you should do in a new, in an event of a nuclear attack, get inside all this, take off your clothes, take a shower, you know, get, get, you know, stay away from the windows. Very, very, very dystopian. But the point is, is that that's not done for no reason, right? That there are elements of the establishment who understand where things are going and surely elements of the establishment are also promote. I mean, they obviously are promoting this because things get hotter and hotter and hotter with Russia and China. Uh, we've been talking a lot about Russia here, but, but China is also included in this. So that's my thoughts about this. Anytime when I hear nuclear war, when I hear, oh, Putin's talking about new- maybe using nuclear weapons, oh, this and that, you know, or this uh, news story, I just think, yeah, this is on the table. It should be taken seriously. It should be concerning. And um, it shouldn't be underestimated. While at the same time, it shouldn't be also taken as a sign of panic. Right? It should just, we should just understand that this is a possible, um, this is a possibility. And this is something that we need to, of course, uh, fight against. All right. Um, let me, um, Amanda will now be the last caller <laughs> before I head out for this evening. Uh, Amanda, you are now. Oh, I'm, oh. I'm sorry. I don't need to be taking up your evening if you were just about to leave. I'm no, sorry. Okay. I missed most of no, your show. It's okay. It's I, okay. I, 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 I'm, but I'm bummed that I missed your show, but, um, yeah. About this nuclear war thing, so one of the things that I kind of am more concerned about is, like, the fragility of our electrical systems in this country mm. and other things. And I don't know how how nihilist the people making the decisions for Russia are, because I think everybody understands that any any use of nuclear weapons anywhere kind of screws us all up. Mm-hmm. Which is part of the, you know, that whole rationale behind what is it, the ter- the deterrence, right? That's kind of the mm-hmm. whole point behind it. So 
I mean, we wouldn't have expected in a million years before 2001 somebody would use commercial planes to crash into buildings, right? Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I don't want to be making suggestions. I'm just saying it seems like it seems like there are other weaknesses where where they could really do some damage to the American people, like the kind of damage that the American government is trying to do to the Russian people, like this happening to the Ukrainian people because of where they are, right? I'm just curious if you have a thought on that or if you think that China might be a, a mitigating or a, a diplomatic like, I mean, because China doesn't want anybody to set off nuclear weapons either, I would assume. I'm assuming nobody really wants to see that happen. But China actually has some heft to maybe influence Russia. I mean, I just don't know. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I understand your concern. My, 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 um, my take on this is that. You know, when it comes to this threat of nuclear war, uh, particularly with Russia, there's been a lot in the media talking about Russia may use tactical nuclear weapons. When I was interviewing Scott Ritter, you know, we kind of went over this and we, you know, I think we, we both share the opinion that the threat really isn't with Russia because Russia's nuclear doctrine is actually very clear. Uh, Russia does not have like a, we just use nuclear weapons when it's good for us policy. It has the po it has a doctrine that's very clear. It says there's two conditions when this is a possibility. One, when it's being attacked itself, when, when there are nuclear weapons being pointed at and fired onto Russia, and when it feels that its territorial and national uh, sovereignty is being violated militarily. So that's not going to happen with Ukraine. Ukraine doesn't have that capacity. Ukraine isn't going to be uh, storming the border. <laughs> that would be even more of a disaster than Ukraine finds itself in right now. But it could happen with NATO, right? NATO has that capacity. NATO is surrounding Russia militarily. NATO could indeed uh, invoke uh, its fraudulent constitution and say, oh, it's time to invade, right? Or it's time to use our allies to conduct a military campaign against Russia. Suicidal, definitely. But nonetheless, Russia could be compelled to use nuclear weapons because, as I said earlier, right, Poland is now entering in this nuclear sharing agreement. There are many other countries in NATO that are in this agreement. They have, they have the U in, in any event, they have the U.S.'s nuclear weapons and the U.S. could say fire. But so I'm not, but so so with that said, I'm not worried so much about Russia, right? I think where the worry, and, and you know, and, and I'm also less concerned about Russia's intent and its impact on the uh, on people in the United States. I actually think that what's happening is we're seeing blowback on the part of the U.S. U.S. and NATO's policy all across the board, but with particular emphasis on these economic sanctions. So I'm not sure if there's any real calculations on like inflicting pain on the American people, on ordinary Americans, or even ordinary Europeans. Hell, Russia wants to continue to send gas to Europe if it can. It's just that Europe is making it incredibly difficult, if not now impossible. And, you know, Putin's speech 
after the referendums, it's like all bets are off. If you want to be vassals and servants to the United States, then that's what's going. Then then that's what's going to happen, and we can't stop that, and we won't stop that. We will go our own. We will go our own way. So I think that's more so what's going to happen. What I'm concerned about, and I think where you talk about the sensitivity of U.S. infrastructure, like electrical grids. I mean, I live in a city, and so that problem is not necessarily something I immediately think about. But when you go into rural areas anywhere in this country, right, where there's any kind of effect, the effect of climate and uh, weather conditions, I mean, you see it. You see how even just a storm could absolutely... (laughs) get rid of your electrical system for possibly quite a while. And and, and so, yes, any kind of uh, possible scenario where NATO instigates a nuclear conflict will have massive consequences for people in the United States. Uh, a lot of, a lot of, and especially those folks who live in these kind of areas and, and just, I mean, all of us, right? It, it, that's it. As Scott Ritter says, it's the end of humanity. It's the end of the world, right? That's, that's it. If there's a nuclear exchange. So we want to avoid that. And I think the way we do that is by, right, pointing out where the, I think where the threat really lies. Um, it lies in the fact that there are elements of this establishment. I don't think it's, you know, of course, I think it might be contemplated among uh, Russia's military brass in the sense of its doctrine, right? What will happen should NATO do the unthinkable? But I think the big concern is that, yeah, <laughs> there's a concern that NATO might do the unthinkable. And so so that's where I would focus. At least that's where I would focus my concerns more so. Uh, but I definitely do appreciate the, the comments. Um, so, um, actually, um, where am I? Um, yeah, so, so that's all, folks. I've been on for a little bit over an hour. I'm going to call it a night. Uh, so just a few announcements before I go. Of course, if you're new here, uh, make sure you're subscribed to this podcast. If you're not new here, you know, be sure I'm still looking to become sustainable on, uh, uh, um, in my media work. So of course you can support me everywhere. Uh, Supporting me here is a good way to do that as well. Patreon, of course. Um, And then there's some exciting stuff coming up. You know, we have, you know, uh, on the left lens, Mohammed Rondi, hopefully on Sunday, I'm going to try to get an AMA going, I think Friday afternoon. Um, And, uh, then I'm going to try to have, you know, I want to schedule the Duran again, but that's going a little slowly. Uh, trying to get Katie Halper on because she was just censored. So, um, you know, I've shared my telegram in the chat. You can find that also in case Twitter throws me off. Um, yeah, but but more to come, folks, and I'll be back again uh, very soon. Um and so, yeah, be sure to click that link on Patreon to support. And um, and to answer your question, Big Teal, uh, yes, she was fired from the Hill for her segment on Israel. And I want to definitely get her on the left lens and possibly on Colin directly afterward if we can work it out. 
So with that said, everybody, take good care. We'll be in touch. We'll be sure to um, be back on here soon. Have a good night, okay? Bye-bye.